Please take your Bibles, or if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you, and open with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6, so that we can read this morning's text together. It's 1 Timothy chapter 6. We'll be starting in verse 6 and reading down through verse 19. There is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and hurtful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced their hearts with many pangs. But as for you, man of God, shun all this. Aim at righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this will be made manifest at the proper time by the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords who alone has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this world, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on uncertain riches, but on God, who richly furnishes us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good deeds, liberal and generous, thus laying up for themselves a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of the life which is life indeed. Probably people reading the title of this message in the Tribune on Saturday, the currency of Christian hedonism would construe it exactly the opposite of the way I intend it. Namely, they would probably say, well, Christian hedonism is definitely bad and money is probably the worst culprit because that's what people use to exploit their desires for pleasure. And I mean that Christian hedonism is definitely good and money is one of the greatest means of achieving proper happiness. Money is the currency of Christian hedonism in the sense that what you do with it will make or break your happiness forever. If you have closed your Bibles, open them again to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 to 19, where everything I have to say uh, is rooted, I trust. This text makes clear, it seems to me, that what you do with your money can either destroy you, verse 9, or it can... Secure your eternal life, verse 19. Therefore, it seems to me that what the passage is teaching 
is an advocacy of Christian hedonism that we should pursue with all our heart our maximum happiness by the way we use our money, not settle for anything less. Christian hedonism is the view that it is not only permitted, but commanded that we pursue our full and lasting pleasure in all we do, and that all the evils in the world come not because our desires for happiness are too strong, but because they are so weak that we settle for pleasures which destroy the soul instead of satisfying our deepest longings. The root of all evil is that we are the kind of people who settle for the love of money instead of the love of God. Now, Paul writes to Timothy in these verses and warns him that there are some slick deceivers in Ephesus who intend to cash in on the upsurge of evangelicalism in Ephesus. According to verse 5 of 1 Timothy 6, there are some puffed-up controversialists who treat godliness as a means of gain. They are so addicted to the love of money that truth has no place in their affections. And therefore, when it comes to advertising, doesn't matter whether it's true or not, as long as the bottom line is big and black, Write it in. If godliness is in, sell godliness. Sex always sells. You've got to catch godliness on the crest of the wave. Or it may pass and you miss the bucks. These are good days for godliness in America, just like they were good days for godliness in Ephesus. A hot market. For booksellers and music makers and dispensers of silver crosses and fish buckles and olive wood letter openers and bumper stickers and lucky water crosses with Jesus on the front and Lourdes water inside guaranteed to make you win at bingo or your money back in 90 days. These are good days for gain in godliness in America Now, Paul could have responded to these money seekers by saying, Timothy, don't do it because Christians don't live for gain. Christians do what's right for its own sake. Christians don't aim at profit. That's not what he said because he is a Christian Hedonist. He said, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. Instead of saying to Christians, don't live for gain, he said, Christians, stop living for such paltry gain as what you can get by money and live for the gain you can get by godliness when you're content with the money that you already have. Godliness is the way to great gain, according to verse 6, if 
it is accompanied by a freedom from the desire to be rich. Godliness with contentment is great gain. If your godliness has freed you from the desire to be rich and has helped you to be content with what you have, then it is tremendously profitable. Godliness that overcomes the craving for material wealth produces spiritual wealth. So what verse 6 is saying is that it is very profitable to be godly if your godliness isn't accompanied by a desire to be rich, but is accompanied by contentment. And what follows in verses 7 through 10 are three reasons why you shouldn't at any cost want to be rich. But before I give you those three reasons, let me give a qualification or a clarification, lest there be a misunderstanding. We live in a society in which there are many legitimate businesses that are dependent on large concentrations of capital for their productivity. You can't build a manufacturing plant without massive amounts of equity in one form or another. Therefore, financial officers in big corporations are charged with the responsibility of increasing reserves. Perhaps, for example, by selling stock. When the Bible condemns the desire to get rich, which it is going to do in just a moment, It is not necessarily condemning a business which aims to expand and therefore seeks capital reserves. Now, the officers in that business may very well be greedy. Wanting more personal wealth for themselves with bigger salaries and more luxuries, but not necessarily. They may be motivated by nobler, higher aims of jobs that will be created and good that will be done for the society through their product. There are products which don't do any good for society, and that would cause a crisis of conscience, I think, for an employee. Even if you're just a peon in this big corporation and you have the chance and are offered a job that pays much more and you take it. That is not in itself enough for me or anybody else to condemn you as one who has a desire to be rich. It may mean that you are greedy and long for the ego boost and prestige and material comforts and luxuries that that extra money might buy you. But not necessarily. You might very much aim to use that extra money to build an orphanage or give a scholarship or send a missionary or fund some kind of inner city ministry. Nobody can judge your relation to money by how much you make. Working to earn money to use for your own basic needs and for the cause of Christ is not what Paul means when he condemns the desire to be rich. 
What Paul is warning against is not the desire to earn money for our needs and others needs. It's a warning against that insatiable, creeping desire to have more and more money for the ego boost and the material luxuries that can come with it. Now, with that qualification, let's go and see three reasons why Paul says to us this morning and God through him don't want to be rich. Reason number one, verse seven, because we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Or as Flossie O'Connor says, there are no U-Hauls behind hearses. Suppose someone passes through the turnstiles of a big city art museum, empty handed, and begins to take off pictures from the wall, put them under his arm from room to room. And you come up to him and say, what do you think you're doing? He says, I'm becoming an art collector. And you say, you can't do that. They don't belong to you. And besides, they won't let you out. You've got to go out just like you came in. And he says, sure, they belong to me. I've got them right here under my arm. And people look at me as I walk through the halls and they're pretty impressed. I don't think about having to leave. Don't be a killjoy. Now, you'd look at that person. You'd say, there is a first class fool. He is totally out of touch with reality. And so is every human being who makes it his aim in life to be rich. You cannot take one cent of it, nor anything on any shelf in your house with you. Or picture the death of 269 people in a plane crash. Before the crash, in the warmth of the plane, there is a politician surrounded by a coterie of attendants. There's a millionaire corporate executive on a trip. There's a playboy with his latest playmate. And there's a missionary kid on the way home from visiting grandma in the States. And in one instant, they are all before God. The MasterCards are gone checkbooks, the credit lines, the image clothes, the success books, the Hilton reservations, and they are as naked as possible on level ground, the missionary kid and the millionaire. And they didn't bring one thing with them, but what they brought right here. And I think the judge will look on the little missionary kid with every bit as much favor as he looks on the millionaire. Don't want to be rich. The first argument is enough all by itself. You are throwing your life away. If you make it your aim to be rich. For we brought nothing into the world. And we can take nothing out again. Here's the second reason though. Verse 8. If we have food and clothing... With these, we'll be content. Christians can be and ought to be content with the basic necessities 
of life. Let me give you three reasons under this second point why that it's possible and good to be content with the basic necessities of life and not to want to be rich. First, if you have God, God for you and with you, you can't improve on your security or your joy by adding things. Hebrews says, Hebrews 13, 5 says, be content with what you have, for he has promised, I will never leave you or forsake you. He goes on to say, therefore, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? The promise of God's presence and work for us puts you in a position that you can improve upon. And therefore, if he grants you your basic necessities of life, then you don't need anything more to make you happy in him. Second reason why we can be content with the necessities of life. Don't you agree that the deepest and most satisfying delights that God gives, he gives through his creation and through people freely. Human relationships and gifts of nature that cost nothing bring the deepest delights. After your basic needs are met, money ceases to help joy. It starts to constrict your capacity for joy. Once God has given you the food and clothing and basic education that you need in life, then the rise in riches tends to make your heart shrivel in the kinds of joys it delights in. Buying things contributes absolutely nothing to the heart's capacity to be happy. Nothing. There is a difference. And you've all experienced it between the temporary thrill of a, a toy that you buy, whether it's a game for your kids or a game for yourself. There is a big difference between a temporary thrill from a toy and a homecoming hug from a long awaited friend. And the one you can spend thousand dollars on. And the other one you couldn't pay for for a million. And if you weighed them out, this one would rise high. Or in the balances, it would weigh heavier. Who do you think is happier? The man who, for $100, gets a room in a 40th floor suite downtown and then spends his evening in a dark, half-lit, smoke filled cocktail lounge impressing strange women with $10 cocktails or the man who takes a motel six on the edge of town by a vacant lot with sunflowers and watches the sun go down and then writes a love letter to his wife. Who's the happier? Who's the richer? The third reason why we can be content with the simple necessities of life is that when we are, then all the money we make extra 
can be used for what really counts. And then it gets exciting. Life gets exciting that the money that's pouring in because God's blessing our labor is being expended in the most blessed ways possible. There are three billion people in the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And two thirds of those people do not have a viable Christian witness in their culture. If they are to hear the good news and Christ commands that they hear the good news, cross-cultural missionaries must be sent and paid for by the church. All the wealth that is needed to fund that army of ambassadors is in the American church. It is all here. It is not in the clouds. And if we, like Paul, are content with the simple necessities of life, there will be thousands more dollars at Bethlehem, millions of more dollars in the Baptist General Conference, and hundreds of millions of more dollars in the American Protestant Church to complete the cause of the Great Commission in the next 20 years if we obey this text. And the revolution of joy and freedom that that would cause at home would be the most powerful witness to Minneapolis of the authenticity of our faith of any witnessing strategy we could devise. I will count it the success or the failure of my ministry in the next five years when single people and married couples come forth to present themselves to go. And we either say you can have a thousand dollars or we will pay it. If we just give token support to young people rising up in this church who want to be missionaries, my life will be jeopardized. My ministry will not have been a success. Now that's the end of point two and the second reason why we ought not to want to be rich. And there's one more reason, a third one. Verses nine and ten. The reason is simply this. If you pursue wealth, you will be destroyed. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and hurtful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all evils. It is through this craving that some have wavered away, wandered away from the faith and pierced their hearts with many pangs. No Christian hedonist wants to have his heart pierced with with pangs or wants to be ruined or wants to be destroyed. And therefore, no Christian hedonist wants to be rich. Lest there be any misunderstanding about the title. This text makes it very clear that if you are really hedonistic, 
You will avoid wanting to be rich. It's too expensive. Test yourself. Have you learned your attitude toward money from the Bible or have you absorbed it from the American merchandising system? Does this book or the Bible have a greater impact on you? This is an airline magazine called United, September issue. I picked it up on the plane Wednesday, coming back from Omaha. They're all the same. They never change. And therefore, it's typical of what I want to address. Airline magazines distill the worst kind of teaching on wealth into glossy pages. They teach subtly, but quite intentionally, the very opposite of what verse 9 teaches. Verse 9 makes it vivid that there is a peril, a deadly peril in wanting to be rich. This magazine teaches that there is life, there is meaning, there is joy, there is fulfillment in wanting to be rich and having all the symbols of wealth. Take, for example, this page that I tore out. Pictures a man in a plush study by his chair, and it says at the top, his suits are custom tailored, his watch is solid gold, his office chair is lazy boy. Yeah, I think they are going to have to change the name in order to succeed at their aim. But they're trying. Here's what he says at the bottom. I've worked hard and had my share of luck. My business is a success. I wanted my office to reflect this, and I think it does. For my chair, I chose Lazy Boy Executive Recliner. If you can't say this about your office chair... Isn't it about time you sat in a lazy boy? After all, haven't you been without one long enough? Now, for those who have ears to hear, there is a philosophy of wealth in that last sentence. Haven't you businessmen riding the plane to your reservations at your big Hilton's been without this symbol of wealth long enough? Translated, the philosophy goes like this. If you've earned it, only a fool would deny himself the symbols of luxury and wealth. Verse 9, if it's true, and you must decide whether the ad men or St. Paul are speaking truth. If verse 9 is true, and the desire for wealth brings you into the trap of Satan, then this ad and almost this whole magazine are demonic. Literally, with no overstatement. 
That is, they are a tool of Satan to exploit and promote the very thing that destroys more lives in this country, probably, than anything else. The desire for money. And, and you should realize that they are as harmful to a biblical lifestyle as anything you might read in the sex ads of the Minnesota Daily. Though we tend to respond with revulsion to those things. Are you awake? Are you free from the clean, antiseptic, economic wickedness of American merchandising? Or has the omnipresent economic lie so saturated your minds that the only sin you can think of when it comes to money is stealing. I believe in free speech. I believe in free enterprise because I have no faith whatsoever in a sinful civil government being able to improve on the institutions created by sinful individuals. But for God's sake, for God's sake, let us use our freedom as Christians in America to say no to the economic lie that is presented to us from absolutely every side in every media. And let us say yes to the biblical truth. There is great gain in godliness if it's not accompanied by a desire to be rich. That's addressed now to people who aren't rich, but might want to be. Let's go over and finish up by looking at the words Paul addressed to the people who are rich in the church. In verses 17 to 19 of chapter 6. What should rich people who get converted do with their money? Paul's answer in verse 19, is virtually a paraphrase of the teachings of Jesus. Jesus said, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Jesus said, use your money to secure eternal habitations in which you can be received when you die. Jesus says, use your money to provide purses that don't grow old Heavenly treasures that do not fail. Now, Paul puts all that together and puts it this way for the rich people in the church. Use your money to lay up for yourselves or that they should lay up for themselves a good foundation for the future. And take hold on eternal life, which is life indeed. There is a way to use your money which forfeits life. You see that in the text? There is a way to use your money which forfeits eternal life. And there is a way to use your money which secures or lays hold on eternal life. And this is true, not because you can buy eternal life, but because what you do with your money shows where your hope is. Just as plain as day. 
What you do with your money shows where your hope is and where your hope is determines where you will spend eternity. Now, Paul gives three very simple directions to rich people in these verses. First, in verse 17, he says, don't let your money make you arrogant or proud. Oh, how deceptive this is. Oh, how deceptive. It's deceptive for the poor. It's deceptive for the rich. Haven't you ever made a purchase and you say, hmm, that was a pretty astute purchase. And the ego grows. Or haven't you ever put money in the bank and said, boy, that was great. I've got a little padding now. And the ego takes off. The use of money is attractive to us mainly because it gives fuel to the fire of pride. And Paul says, don't let it happen to you. Second, also in verse 17, he says, Rich people, don't set your hope on uncertain riches, but on God who richly furnishes you all things to enjoy. That's not easy for a rich man. Jesus said it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom. And the reason he said it is because when you've got all manner of wealth surrounding you. It's very hard to look at the future that that holds out to you and turn away from it and look only to God and say to him in you alone I put my hope this does not count by way of security or hope for the future that's hard but Paul says if rich people don't do it they can't be saved they will be lost if they put their hope in their riches Instead of putting their hope in God. It is so easy to fall in love with God's gifts. Toss up a little prayer of thanksgiving every now and then. To make it look religious. But really you've become an idolater long ago. And he is not your heart's delight. His gifts are. And finally the third thing he says to rich people in verse 18. Is. The rich must use their money to promote good deeds and be liberal and generous. Once the rich are liberated from the magnet of pride and once they have God as their hope, there's only one thing that can start to happen with their money. It starts to go out in all manner of multiplying Christian ministries. The hungry will be fed sick will be healed, the ignorant will be taught, the frontiers will be evangelized. And like Zacchaeus of old, the love of God flowing through us will start to bore out of the conduit of grace all the gold that we thought had to be there in order to make life appropriate. The gold will be bored out of the pipeline of grace and we'll replace it with copper and flow freely. Towards needs that are all around us. Copper will do. Now in conclusion it seems to me that what Paul is trying to do in these two texts. The one addressed to the poor who might want to be rich and shouldn't want to be rich. And the one addressed to rich people who might put their hope in their riches. And fail to be generous. is just really one thing. You do want eternal life don't you? Paul never tr- 
trifles with unessentials. He stands on the brink of eternity and that's why he sees things so clearly. And he turns around and he faces us as a mediator between us and God as a gatekeeper on the portals of eternal life. And he says, now, you are good Christian hedonists, aren't you? Yes. You do want life, which is life indeed, don't you? Yes. You don't want ruin and destruction and pangs of heart, do you? No. You do want the gain that godliness can bring, don't you? Yes. Well, then use the currency of Christian hedonism wisely. Number one, do not desire to be rich. Number two, be content with the simple necessities of life. Number three, set your hope fully on God instead of on what he gives Four. Guard yourself from pride. And fifth, tying the message together with last week. Let your heart be so full of joy in God that you inevitably spill over in good deeds and liberality. Because this world is racked by lostness and need. Let us pray. Giver of every good and perfect gift, forgive us for loving your gifts more than we love you. Forgive us for wanting to be rich instead of beholding our riches in Christ and being content with food and clothing. And I pray, O God, as we sing this prayer in closing, that we will all from our heart be able to mean what we sing in verse 3. Otherwise, Lord, let us be silent, for silence is better than hypocrisy. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.